The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today on the podcast we return to Iceland with another author to examine the history and folklore of a few hundred years ago. Caroline Lee grew up in Jersey and gained a first in English literature and creative writing from Warwick University. She went on to become head of English at a Birmingham grammar school before returning to Warwick where she now lives works and writes from. Caroline's novel The Glass Woman was published by Penguin Books in the UK in February and releases in the US very soon. It is set in an Iceland of 1686, a time when the superstitious population were haunted by the recent memories of witch trials, and examines the lives and trials of people in village communities at that time. It has been described as rich in superstition and mystery, and utterly unputdownable, and I would happily endorse those descriptions. I spoke with Caroline recently about the novel and her writing. Hello Caroline, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, now, before we start, uh, I'll just ask you, if you don't mind, as I do with all of the guests we have on the podcast, to just say a little bit uh, about who you are and your background and what you do and what interest you have in folklore. Sure. Um, yeah, so I uh, started writing quite some time ago after doing uh, the creative writing degree at Warwick as an undergraduate and I'd always wanted to write, um, but then ended up in teaching because I thought that would give me plenty of time to write because teachers have long holidays and start work at nine and end at three. Um, <laughs> but then uh, ended up not writing my first book for quite some time. But throughout that, I'd always had um, sort of a fair amount of interest in, in folklore and um, fairy tales. I loved the work of, of writers like Angela Carter and was sort of continually drawn to that. So... Um, from when I first started kind of writing for publication, I really wanted to write stuff that had 
um, I suppose, a, a background and a, a landscape to the story that existed, um, that sort of to the story that um, that was was working. So, um, yeah, I I mainly write and I write as much as I can, but I also now teach on the Warwick Creative Writing Program um, as well. I worked in schools teaching for quite some time, but um, I'm mainly university teaching now. And uh, it's just a, a, a juggling act. I've also got two small children. Um, so, yeah, that uh, provides some sort of time constraint. But um, it's it's interesting because they come out with bits of folklore that I wasn't aware of, stuff that they've picked up in school and things about Greek myth that I didn't know and I think was severely lacking in my education. And that, um <laughs> But now, yeah, that, that drives kind of my interest even more. So that's always good. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple of strains to that, I guess, as well, isn't there? Because there's there's the syllabus uh, study of mythology, which naturally has some folklore elements in it. Uh, but then there's very much a culture of, of um, playground folklore, uh, an area that's been written about and studied at length by um, the, the late Opie's. Um, Iona Opie and, and her husband collected masses of playground folklore so new stuff comes back from that all the time too i guess oh that sounds brilliant that sounds really brilliant i haven't i haven't come across that but um i think the idea of um kids are so open to thoughts about mythology and i suppose just readily believe stories and they're constantly telling each other stories and um there's a there's kind of a a natural feeling about so much of folklore and the way that it incorporates ideas about kind of the land that we live in and how we live you know how we live within it and kids seem so much more open to that i think than we are i think it's really easy as an adult to kind of close yourself off to anything that doesn't seem quite real and believable and to look at things like folklore as though they're some sort of abstract or something from the past but um there's so much there's so much folklore that's still that's still present in you know in in the society that we live in today and kind of beliefs and myths and urban myths and we still like telling each other stories so yeah yeah, we really do. And that's that's precisely what you're doing through your writing, isn't it? And so today um, we're going to talk about your latest book, um, which is <laughs> The Glass Woman, uh, published by Penguin Random House. Uh, I, As I've said to you before, this interview, uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this book. It, it still remains my book of the year so far. It's It's such a wonderful and evocative and fascinating story um, and I hope this interview spurs lots of people to go and seek it out because it, it is absolutely absolutely fantastic <laughs> now uh, tell us uh, for those that haven't read it or don't know it uh, a little bit of a synopsis no spoilers um, as as to what the book is about um, so the glass woman is set in 17th century Iceland, which I think for some people who might not automatically be interested in history and folklore sounds um, or could sound potentially off-putting. Other people, I think, are fascinated by the idea. But um, although it's a historical novel, I think some of the lots of the concerns that I wanted to deal with, um, like the power balance in relationships between men and women and what we choose to believe in and how we end up sort of fearing things, um, a kind of, uni well, I wanted them to be sort of universally kind of relevant themes that cropped up in the novel. So the protagonist is um, Rosa and she's sort of forced through circumstances to marry a man who lives in a far off village um, in sort of on, on the coast of Iceland. And so then has to leave um, kind of her safety and security and her mother who's, who's unwell. Um, and 
and marry this local uh, uh, Gordy, who's like a sort of like a chieftain um, in the village, who has kind of secrets of his own, and there's talk about his first wife and that she died, and he sort of buried her. Um, and there are kind of rumours about him, and he's quite an unsettling character, I think, for lots of the novel. But um, one of the kind of drivers behind my inspiration for it was, I suppose, the idea that um, everyone has a perspective on on different events. And um, I wanted to tell Rose's story and uh, and Jan's, and um, and to kind of explore the ways in which kind of conflict and to some extent, like fear and marital breakdown or relationship breakdown. Um, even when you, from your own subjective perspective, it feels uh, very definitely kind of one-sided and clear-cut. There are always two sides to every story. Um, there's a great proverb at the start that I've used at the start. Um, Icelandic um, kind of folklore and everything is is brilliant for for kind of for proverbs. Um, and it's a tale is only half told when one person tells it. And it's it's so very true. Um, from you know minor disagreements to, to things like marital breakdown, everyone everyone has a side to the story. Um, so yeah, it's it kind of focuses around that and deals with the superstition and um, yeah the folklore of the landscape because Rosa becomes increasingly terrified when when the land and the place she's moved to are, become horribly unsettling. Now this is a story that could have been told in a a, a number of different ways and and stories surrounding. Um, marital breakup and relationships are, are not uncommon stories to tell. Uh, mm -hmm. So why did you choose to travel firstly back to the 17th century and secondly across mm. to Iceland in order to tell your version of this tale? So I, I wanted um, a, a landscape where uh, you could feel very sort of unsettled and isolated. I think that um, that place of, of kind of a relationship breakdown is such a frightening one. And particularly kind of at that time in, in the 17th century where women were so disempowered um, and, you know, many people sort of lacked maybe the, the education um, to be able to kind of question beliefs. Um, and so that even as like a maybe, well, the alternative to kind of the ancient beliefs and um, folklore that uh, people were educated about was Christianity. And so it was, the 17th century was quite a time of conflict, I suppose, for religion versus folklore. Um, and there's quite a lot of focus on the fact that um, Rose's father is, um, was uh, a, a Catholic, sorry, was a, was a, was a reverend. And um, then her, and her new husband is quite religious. Um, but she herself like has absorbed um, ideas about folklore through her relationship with her mother. So she herself kind of embodies this duality and this awkward kind of space in in history where where people could believe one or two one or two things and increasingly outside influences, particularly from Denmark, um, which had a sort of increasing amount of control over Iceland at that point. Um, the, the thrust is definitely towards Christianity and kind of cutting out the old ways and doing away with these traditions that really people had um, had believed for for um, centuries because the landscape is so raw and so wild. And so that was part of my decision. Um, and kind of and obviously the landscape itself is so evocative. Um, and so the idea of kind of, of being isolated anyway um, is, I think, I hope, intensified through. The, the idea that, that when Rosa moves away from her family, 
she doesn't just move down the road. Um, it's 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 utterly impassable at, at times in Iceland. And if you went out into a snowstorm, you could you could disappear. You could be a few meters away from someone and just <clears throat> yeah, just disappear. So I I loved the idea of that evocative, beautiful, brutal landscape. And I think maybe because of that, um, you know, people sort of believe in things like the the hill folk. Um, and these kind of these spirits that live within the land and other forces that operate, and that was hugely appealing. Um, yeah, and along with uh, the Icelandic sagas, which I wasn't really aware of, and I don't, I don't know how I managed to degree in English literature without ever really being aware of the Icelandic sagas, because they're really <laughs> fundamental. But um, they're some of the oldest stories, really, in Western literature, um, and they've got their, rather than being kind of these grandiose tales um, of heroism, that uh, you know that are enacted by gods and goddesses. Um, although I, the Icelandic sagas have elements of the supernatural within them, they're very much the stories of um, of normal Icelanders, or you know maybe fairly powerful Icelanders, that um, for whom sort of magic events occur sometimes. So you'll have this story that's just richly steeped in kind of in this this brutal environment, and um, you'll have sort of ghosts or um, or trolls or um, the hill folk um, operating kind of within the story and those forces of good and evil as a backdrop and a background to to what could otherwise be an everyday story of your brother stole my wife. Um, so it's I, I love that conflict between sort of the, the domestic and kind of the supernatural and the ideas of folklore that underpinned it. Do you think as well that in some ways you're, you're challenging the... Um the norms within the folklore within Iceland to one extent and that is that in this book the Christianity angle is sitting quite firmly with John uh, I, mm. I guess as a main character um, and R Rosa is potentially seen to be uh, to run the risk of being seen as a witch uh, and then you have uh, another character in the book as well who who is also you know, known for her healing and and those sorts of uh, um, wise woman type characteristics. Now, in Iceland, it was very much predominantly that men were seen as witches, if you like, more so than mm. women in the in the folklore record. Uh, but but the way you tell the story kind of almost inverts that. Was that a conscious decision? Um, I I think I wanted to kind of use that to to add to the idea of kind of the terrifying landscape um, that that Rosa found herself um, rather than necessarily sort of consciously inverting because um, yeah you're right that female witches is definitely sort of a, a kind of a, a European convention over here and maybe through Germany and um, and the number of well the number of people who burned um, for witchcraft in Iceland was actually only around a hundred. And there were very few cases of women who were burned, and usually they were outsiders. So I think there was one case um, up in the north of Iceland where there was a woman who'd, um, and I kind of incorporated it into the novel, there was a woman who um, was an outsider and had managed to survive a horrible snowstorm and reach this village safely. And as a result, she was accused of witchcraft. But um, primarily, I think, um, unlike in um, sort of over here, where it was easy to direct accusations of witchcraft against someone who was unsettling because they were sort of maybe fairly powerless or were outside of kind of the boundaries of 
um, the social sphere. So the, the stereotype is the woman who lives by herself and maybe has a cat and kind of seems independent and therefore doesn't seem to rely on the kind of patriarchal norms with, within the society and becomes therefore threatening and an easy scapegoat. And I think the same thing, some of the same ideas were going on in Iceland in that it was quite often that the accusation was, was levied at a man because he was threatening for, but for different reasons. So generally it was men who were educated and gen, for, at that time in Iceland, if you had, um, if your cows got ill um, you or your sheep got ill, you were very much as likely or lots of people were as likely to um, call a priest as to as, as to call sort of a, a, a man who might kind of cast a spell to uh, to kind of to bless or to to get rid of um, to get rid of the evil influence and the two things kind of were were fairly fairly comfortably coexisted but increasingly sort of as I said as the religious um, influence um, grew the suspicions that could be levied at men were were much could it sort of ran much higher and the idea of like an out a man who was an outsider then in a society that was slowly knitting together under the influence of Christianity became more worrying. So at that point then, the educated man who's perhaps getting a bit too powerful becomes a threat and in the same way that a woman might have been a threat here because she didn't quite operate within the norms that society had agreed on. A man who was too educated, too powerful over there could be accused of witchcraft, I think for, for similar fundamental sort of underlying reasons. And that might be too much of a generalization. I'm not a I'm not an historian um, who's studied in any great depth, but that um, was some of the the ideas that sort of that seemed to occur to me um and it worked quite well within the story because um because initially there are sort of well there are suspicions and there's constant threat of um of witchcraft that could be levied at anyone and and yon is a powerful figure within the village um but i wanted that threat to hang over rosa as well and katrine um and just this idea that that your your existence is so tenuous and really you you rely on well and particularly the women would have relied on the men who had power um and that position of power was something that people jostled for yeah i i agree entirely i think i think you're absolutely right in the way that you treated it uh it's evident from the way that you talk about it uh and it's certainly evident from the the text of the book that you've put an awful lot of research into this novel um in preparation for writing it um how mm. how did you go about uh, researching an area that, by your own admission, as not being a historian, is is not an area that you have studied for the whole of your career. Um, how did you go about researching it? And and during the course of that research, um, what what kind of beliefs and traditions and things were thrown up that that surprised you, or or that you had to look into more? Um. So. I, like I said, it was sort of it was the landscape and the and the folklore that initially drew me to to that particular time um, time period and, and to the country. And I then I because I do love doing research, I then went and bought an awful lot of I'm going to say books are never overpriced, but um, books of historical resource re, sort of research that have a limited print run. They are, really are. Um, they're not cheap. <laughs> They're not cheap, and I mean, perhaps if I lived in London, it would be easier, and I could go and um, go and spend a day in a massive library. But um, my local library's resources of um, 17th century Iceland were, um, were 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 very few. 
Um, so I, I ordered a load of books on kind of uh, society and um, kind of anthropology and uh, beliefs at that point. And I, I spent quite a lot of time on Google and I tracked people down and emailed them. And I was lucky enough um, then because I wrote my first draft before I went to Iceland, which I know sounds backwards. Um, but it's actually it, it was it was just because of timing. I've got two small children. I didn't have time to go, and I was writing this novel. So I just thought, well, uh, if there's gaps, I'll discover them as I travel. And actually, I would never do it any other way now. Um, I think it just allowed me to focus my research really carefully, and it meant that um, I was really lucky because there were some professors from the University of Iceland who agreed to see me when I went over and spent an afternoon talking to me and I had this just interminable list of questions about minor details or kind of major themes or kind of or big events at that point and I was able to go would this have happened could this have happened might this person have done this and lots of the questions they gave answers to and some of the questions they said well we don't really know but aren't you writing fiction just make it up and actually <laughs> that was quite that was quite refreshing um because it is it's a difficult line, and I think there are always going to be people who come to a historical novel and get annoyed because there's a flaw in kind of in the facts as they're presented. But I do tend to, I tend to feel, um, or I tend to sit in the camp where I feel like if it's fiction, I'm I'm buying into the world of the novel, not to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not reading a history textbook. So I have taken some license with some things, um, but there were lots of brilliant. Um, pieces of, of folklore that, that came up. So um, some of them I've incorporated into the novel, some of them um, just didn't kind of make the cut or were too difficult to. So there's one um, which is in the novel, um, a belief that if you go to sleep um, under a birch tree, that um, you you might kind of wake up um, and the, there could be a troll kind of sitting on your sitting on your chest and he will steal your soul in exchange for kind of gold that he might give you. So this idea, I suppose, of like of greed, um, maybe, and and in the same way that we might use fairy tales to warn people against, um, yeah, against straying off the path. I don't know if that's a, a, a cautionary tale to warn people against greed or to warn them against going to sleep under a tree when they should be doing something else. But um, I, I liked the idea anyway. Um, and kind of myths about the mountains and the landscape that... Um, that lots of them were created by an enormous troll that had kind of sunk his axe into the land and it kind of separated it. Um, and that then kind of lava still bubbled up out of the cracks. And that actually almost word for word was told to me by an Icelandic tour guide. And I was struck by the poetry in kind of in the language of so many of the Icelanders that I spoke to. Um, and I think they have, I think I'm correct in saying they have the highest proportion of writers and poets of any city in the world. Um, and I don't know if that's education levels or this amazing landscape or whether it's kind of the way that they tell each other stories. And um, because these myths and legends and the folklore are still so present. So there are there's been kind of modern cases of roads um, that have been diverted because um, a little bit like um, in Ireland and the Celtic belief in in the good people and the fair folk, um, there are the hill folk in Iceland um, and it, you you kind of you do stuff to keep them happy and you steer clear of their way and if you know that they live in a particular rock or a particular hill you just avoid it so there was a successful petition 
to divert a road because otherwise it would have disturbed the dwelling of the hill folk and um, then there would have been loads of car accidents. And I love the fact that this petition went through Parliament and people were like, well, yeah, actually, that's a good point. Let's divert the road. Um, and then the one that I couldn't include, but I really loved, was, um, have you ever heard of necropants? Yes, I know all about those. Ah, uh, yeah. So for, for anyone who hasn't heard of necropants, and I hadn't before I started doing the research, um, the idea is that these are these are your lucky pants, um, but your lucky pants are made of the um, leg skin of a dead man. Um, and as long as you keep a coin in the pocket of it, which is made from the dead man's scrotum, um, you will always have good financial fortune. Um, and I have to say, it's not it's not something I'm willing to try, but I, I'd love to try with <laughs> someone at some point obviously was. The ice, um, the ice. Yeah, there are so many great beliefs. <laughs> there really are. The, that's okay. The Icelandic Witchcraft Museum is the only museum in the world <clears throat> to the best of my knowledge, that has a genuine pair of necropants. Uh, did you go? Mm. And, did you go and visit them when you were there? Yeah. Yes. Um, and you can. Uh, I mean, for, for people who can't get across to Iceland, I think there are pictures available on the internet as well, and it's quite. It's quite a sight. Um, and it's quite. Yeah. It really <laughs> quite is striking. <laughs> um, yes. They've. And I think that's the thing. There's, there's whole. There's whole museums and there's uh, sort of dedicated to, to kind of past beliefs and. Um, uh, yeah, and I love the fact that there's so many different beliefs, but that they're still still so present. Um, and I think that gives, in the same way that the land, there's something about the land that feels more exposed, there's something about that kind of landscape in the place that feels like being closer to something. Without, I'm not religious, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not particularly superstitious, and I don't personally really believe any of the folklore myself. But I do know that when you're standing next to a geezer that can shoot water, kind of have many feet into the air. There's just there's something there's some sort of knowledge about the elemental force of the land that feels beyond. I don't, it's just it's awe inspiring, um, and I can absolutely see how you know hundreds of years ago people would have just been um, been utterly in awe of it and and totally um, you know taken over by the belief that that there were spirits that operated outside of them and beyond them. And these beliefs um, come up for very different reasons as well, of course. Um, you mentioned the, the folklore about the birch tree there earlier on. Um, and there are a number of aspects to that, I suppose, if you're looking at the greed angle and the, the morality tale, which, mm -hmm. which is very, very common in folklore. But there's also the fact that, that in that particular story, um, the creature sits on the chest. And of course, that draws from uh, old hag phenomena and sleep paralysis folklore and the, and the the concept in Scandinavian countries of the of the um, hug, which is a, a very similar supernatural creature as well, and those beliefs of course come from uh, explanations of of a medical condition that wasn't understood at the time. Uh, mm, so I had no idea that that was sorry, Karen. Yeah, I was going to say in the in the case of the birch tree, there I think there are two or three different aspects to the folklore that have all joined together to make to make one story, perhaps. Mm, yeah, and um, and I wonder how you know it's it's so inventive and it says so much about um about a culture's storytelling and when so many different cultures have we 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 make up stories to explain stuff that we don't understand, um. And yeah, and medical conditions or things, you know, like um, things that we now we now understand used to be attributed to something supernatural. And quite often it was easy to demonize someone who who had a particular condition that we didn't understand. 
Um, but I, I quite like the fact that, um, you know, that, that the same tale can operate in a number of ways, like you said, so as a morality tale or as an explanation or perhaps as both. Yeah, and in that case, I think it is both. And, and of course, you find that different cultures uh, come up with their own versions of the same story. So uh, if you go back to um, one of the earlier seasons of this podcast, uh, there, there's a two-part episode on um, the incubus and the succubus and sleep paralysis and the old hag. Uh, and that, that looks at um, these stories the way, and the way they're approached by lots of different cultures and there, there are lots of similarities between them and i think in that case that that's part of that tradition probably i wonder if it's um i know i always wonder this with, with beliefs that kind of track across different countries and whether they're they've originated in one country and they've kind of been transferred through trade and through by word of mouth or whether we simultaneously kind of um develop these myths that are that have very similar kind of origins and that they're actually they spring up in different places at the same time um and i much like you know sort of tool use was was very similar in in prehistoric times in lots of different areas and uh, you know it's the same sort of question do we kind of does, does language and belief travel in the same way that kind of that tools or technology might travel or are we all kind of essentially programmed to generate these beliefs and stories well that's um, a that's a I, that's a key question, isn't it? Um, there, there are two schools of thought there. I think um, I, I know that um, my book on black dog folklore is sitting on your shelf to be read at some point. Uh, and when you, <laughs> when you, when you read that, you're, this is an area that you'll see that I discuss in that book. Um, and there are two very distinct angles. The, the, certainly, folklore travels uh where where mm -hmm. people travel and it settles and adapts to the culture uh that the people are going to so for example in the case of black dogs um i cite an example of during the times of slavery when a lot of west africans were taken uh to the americas as part of the slave trade mm -hmm. they obviously then took their folklore and their stories with them and they became embedded in the americas so you find examples for example, in Texas, of of ghostly dogs, um, which follow the kind of themes from the African stories, where they're very much uh, part of the family, because that was the route that those uh, particular settlers took, whether they wanted to or not, in in, in much unhappier mm. times. Um, but yes, the flip side is also true, and there's the there's the um, the idea of the collective conscious or the folk memory and this kind of Jungian approach that that we have these ideas embedded, rooted in our subconscious from, from our prehistoric ancestors and that often we retell stories using tropes that come from, from times past uh, without realising how or why we do it. So I, I suspect there's probably a bit of both there. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, I like the way that, that children as well, kind of if you ask a child to tell a story, they seem to formulate something that has a very clear sort of, um, you know, a, a beginning and inciting incident, a, a kind of a, the problem and the, and the resolution. Um, and they do that kind of from a very young age, almost like we have this imprint of, of how stories work and, um, and, and lots of kind of, of folklore myths and the tales sort of tend, tend to be focused on this around Icelandic ones would often be focused around a, a character and, and this thing had happened to them. Um, and, you know, like a, like, 
like every story that we recognize where it's it sticks to this particular imprint and i you know again i question how much we just have this desire to to hear stories that have a problem and then a resolution and it's it's kind of a source of of fear and comfort depending on what you need at that particular time yes yes that's right it really is um there's a lot of fear and not so much comfort probably in the glass woman uh certainly for a large part of it because of the nature of the plot Mm. um you you describe the atmosphere of the book um yourself in other places as being gothic um Mm. it's gothic out of the time of gothic but but that description i think is very fair um did you consciously do that or do you think that is reflective of the beliefs and the traditions of the people about whom you were writing yeah it really it wasn't a conscious decision at all um and i was sort of i was told by my editor after she had read um after she'd read the draft and she um you know she was very positive about the novel and she was like oh you know it, this is a gothic novel and i was like oh is it really um but and so i think it it did just emerge um out of kind of out of the things that i'm interested in the folklore the the darkness that that exists within um within those belief systems and um and within the landscape and i think there are lots of within kind of the yeah within folklore there are there are lots of elements of of gothic you know there's the elements of supernatural and the idea of fear and quite often they're set in places that are a little bit weird to um you know so landscape quite often plays a big part and um, i think folklore and an interesting kind of in belief systems fits quite well with gothic fiction and stuff that i've written since has the same i'm not i'm not setting out i don't sit down and kind of think i'm going to write a gothic novel but everything i write seems well it's it's what i'm drawn to it's what i'm interested in and so I, I stick to kind of similar themes and the stuff that I write as a result, I'm, I'm told is gothic, which I, lo- I love the idea. I like I like sort of fiction, that, although I, I'm, I'm a bit of a wimp, um, but I, I like fiction that has that kind of unsettling feeling and that sense of uncertainty and people trying to look for answers and their kind of their place in the world. And and quite often, I think that is a process of, of fear um, and, and a kind of, and, and ultimately, hopefully, in some in some way, you get some sense of safety. Um, and I think that's, you know, gothic fiction has those origins, too. But I think people used to quite often read gothic fiction to be scared and then to be reassured in the same way that nowadays people read psychological thrillers to see, to watch society falling apart and then ultimately at the end order being restored. It's like it's one of those comforting stories again where we read stuff to escape our reality and to find someone whose life is somehow worse and more terrifying than ours. But then (laughs) at the end, everything is hopefully to some extent. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Psychological thrillers. That's an interest. I'm just going to pick up on that for a moment. Now, my guest on the last Mm. episode of the podcast was an Icelandic author. Um, uh, And that was Ursa Sigurdardoshi. Do you know her work particularly? Um, I've never, I've never read any of her stuff. She's, I've got her, some of her stuff on my shelf um, to to read, but um, I know that, uh, yeah, that she's uh, she's really widely read and widely admired, um, and uh, and that her stuff has has quite a lot of kind of, of elements of of fear and um, and there's quite a lot of of really dark fiction that um, and dark stories that come out of Iceland. Yeah, there really. Uh, what are. were her thoughts on? Um, on, on that um so she she um we talked about uh some various elements of icelandic folklore and and you're absolutely right i mean she cited 
the fact that Icelandic folklore was particularly dark, and she talked about Christmas folklore, for example, which is very dark in Iceland. Um, <laughs> fun and dark at the same time. Um, so she uses, as you do with this book, uh, various aspects of Icelandic belief uh, and Icelandic law in her writing, because that's the nature of the country uh, in which she lives and in which you um, have both written about. But mm. the difference with hers, of course, is that they're they're set um, in the modern day, um, and and they are also crime or thriller. Uh, stories as a genre rather than yours which you describe as being an historical novel um but other people have described your book as being a crime novel uh so how do how do you reconcile those two do you do you see what you've written to be a crime novel in that way it's it's difficult i went um i was at new Orleans, which is in northern ireland and it it there were lots of brilliant crime writers there and they were talking about kind of about crime as a genre and the audience members had gone along to, to a lot of talks and then uh, went, came along to mine with, um, with a couple of other writers and we were talking about gothic fiction and crime and one of the audience members was um, a bit affronted and said, but, but gothic fiction isn't crime. And I don't, I have, I have problems with, with genre anyway, because I kind of think it's, it's a difficult way of pigeonholing, um, books and it's very useful for booksellers in some in some senses in in terms of knowing where to put, position a book or I suppose if someone comes in and asks for a book because they've liked something genre becomes useful in that sense um but I'd hate the idea that that genre became this limiting thing where you sort of you only ever read one particular type of fiction so I do think that um however kind of fashionable or unfashionable it might be and actually I think it can be a dangerous thing to sort of to straddle two genres but I I do think that um I yeah I didn't necessarily again set out to write to write anything that was sort of that sat within the crime genre but I knew that there was going to be some messed up stuff happening <laughs> in it. Um so and I knew there would be darkness in it and I knew there would be death in it. Um but it perhaps doesn't follow some of the con some of the conventions of um of very definitely kind of genre crime fiction um where almost you with some books um and some people again they find enormous comfort in it you approach the book knowing the structure that you would expect and um the glass woman definitely doesn't fit that um and it i mean it definitely is historical um in that it's set in the past um but historical fiction again a little bit like um sci-fi and a little bit like a lot of sort of genre fiction um the term can almost sometimes I think be used critically and can kind of create an idea of something that's somehow stuffy and set in the past and inaccessible as a result um or overly affected um with behaviors that perhaps you don't recognize because they belong to a different time and I didn't want and I never want any of my work although everything I write tends to be set at some point in the past um currently um I never want any of my work to feel like that so um because I think, as I said at the, at the beginning, I do think that the concerns that we deal with and our, our emotional landscape, if you like, is the same and it remains the same, you know, in the same way that those belief systems in, in Iceland, you know, in Icelandic folk folklore have remained the same over time and we kind of carry them with us. And just as you were saying about other folklore beliefs, we carry those ideas and those beliefs with us and 
our, you know, our emotional responses to things and our fundamental desire to believe in something or to answer questions is still the same. Um, so I didn't want anything that's sort of that was historical to feel somehow remote. And I hope it doesn't. No, not at all. And I don't think that I would be comfortable pigeonholing the glass woman into any genre, be it historical or crime or anything else. At the end of the day, I I think it is a novel that is set in our past, and that's really all that you can you can say about it as a categorization. Mm. Um, yeah. you you said earlier that you were not superstitious or or didn't particularly take any of these um beliefs yourself um do you think that's true across the board or do you think that actually you do do things in your daily life that could be seen as being superstitious or being um older beliefs but you just don't realize that you're doing them uh, who's told you um so <laughs> i think i i tell myself that i'm not superstitious because I have a um, a horribly overactive imagination, and at times when I was a kid, I believed in everything and all things, and was terrified of all of them. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm that person who went to see the woman in black, and then I couldn't go outside when it was dark. And sometimes, if I thought about it beforehand, I couldn't go outside when it was light for quite some time. Um, so I think. Um, although I am superstitious, I will feel um, I, I won't walk under a ladder. I tell myself it's just because that's sensible, but I won't do it. Um, I, I, I broke a mirror the other day and was cursing, and it's a piece of glass. Why should I, why should I bother? But then, then I made myself keep the broken mirror. It was one of those two-sided ones um, because I told myself this is silly. It's a superstition. It doesn't matter if I keep the mirror or not. Um, but I'm slightly uncomfortable about it. I might go and throw it away after I finish talking. Actually, maybe you should. Li- um, maybe you I should listen to the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should listen to the podcast episode all about mirror folklore before you decide what to do with it. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll go. I'll go back and listen and get some advice from it. <laughs> so I think. Um, I think we do. We're we're so we're so desperate to find things to believe in, and um, and I think I don't say that in, in any kind of derogative way. I think in derogatory way. Sorry. Um, I do think there's, there's there is something more within within all of us in terms of um, you know at the psychological and chemical level just our, our awareness of self and our, our awareness that we exist within time and space and um, consciousness our consciousness if you like that makes us look for something beyond just ourselves so we see ourselves as kind of our stories as having more significance and therefore I think quite often other stories have more significance as well and we do look for meaning. Um, and I think I, I did go through a phase where I was, um, where I was very religious. I was an atheist growing up and then I became horribly, um, sort of indoctrinated. It was borderline sort of cultish, really frightening me. So, um, for, for a few years and then, and then rejected it out of hand. And so I do, I know that that desire for belief is within me, but I tell myself that I don't believe in things because, I find the idea of actually choosing to believe, particularly in folklore, really quite disturbing. And I do sometimes, after I do my research, have to then not think about the things that I've, that I've, um, yeah, that I've found because some of it is um, really highly disturbing. If you sort of, well, I wouldn't, for instance, do a bit of research and then go out for a long walk in the dark. Um, yeah. So, and I, I think I think most people are the same. I don't know. Maybe I'm making too much of a sweeping generalisation. Um, 
that you know these myths and belief systems are universal every every culture has their folklore and that's got to be because again people have a similar kind of desire for something yeah they do but not all folklore is dark either and you just uh, I, I suppose you you naturally latch on to the darker elements because what I, what I towards, yes. <laughs> uh, whereas whereas in fact there's plenty of folklore which which is the opposite of that as well and you know lots of areas of folklore have their dark side and their lighter side or their protective side um, and it's just how you choose to to interpret it I suppose. Mm. Um, Finally, uh, the title of the book, we we must uh, just address that before we go. The book is called The Glass mm. Woman. Now, The Glass Woman, mm. in physical terms, um, is a little token which Rosa carries in her pocket for a, a large mm -hmm. proportion of the book. Um, mm. Tell us a little bit about The Glass Woman. Um, so I wanted uh, I wanted Rosa to have something that um, that was more akin to ideas about superstition um, and and less that had less association with um, with the Christ, with the sort of the newer Christian religion that was coming in. I knew I wanted to be more connected to the land, partly because then when things do become darker and more frightening in the novel, they seem darker and more frightening to her because she believes in them so strongly. So I didn't want her to carry something like a crucifix or or, or any any kind of religious symbol. Um, I definitely wanted it to be something that that could be associated with other with other elements. But um, and I, I did think about. I mean, there are rune stones that feature kind of prominently in the novel, and and she does she has one of those at um, at some point. But then it felt almost like it would be tying her too closely to a very particular meaning or a very particular idea. Uh, and I wanted her to be able to change. So I suppose the glass woman became something like my own bit of folklore that I added in the novel. And she almost kind of believes she sort of, um, yeah, believes that it that it represents her. It comes to represent her in some ways. Um, and that initially, because it's a gift from her husband, it seems to represent something that's kind of that's fragile or inaccessible or more perfect than she will ever be. But um, as she sort of develops as a, as a character and as she strengthens throughout the novel, um, it perhaps comes to represent something else. And so I wanted um, I wanted an object to which I could ascribe my own meaning and to which Rosa could ascribe meaning and which to which the reader could sort of could find something. I know that um, the readers have messaged me saying, what is the glass wall? What does it represent? Um, and I, in some ways, I don't want to give an answer because it doesn't. It doesn't really matter what I think it represents. I mean, I know I I know I wrote the book, but I I very much believe that that once I've written it, it's sort of it's it's open for interpretation, and I would be very happy. I I would love the idea if a reader sort of came up with an interpretation that I hadn't thought of, um, but they you know they they found within the novel. I think um, texts in that way continue to be living things. It's the reason why we still find meaning in Shakespeare so many years um on it's the reason why we still find um folklore so fascinating because we do we take our modern belief systems and we imprint them on something and change its meaning um or you know find some way of connecting with with past beliefs um and so yeah that was that was the glass woman and the idea really yeah it, that that really is a very good example of, of why folklore is is so interesting and and so important i guess, i guess in equal measure um caroline this has been a 
fascinating interview. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to to talk about the book. Um, if people want to go and find The Glass Woman to read it for themselves, and I, as I said at the top of this interview, I really suggest that you do, because um, not only is it a great read, but there are a lot of aspects of folklore in there that we didn't even touch upon in this interview. The runes, which you mentioned mm -hmm. very, very briefly, ritual, superstition, yeah. healing, all sorts of aspects mm -hmm. um, which we haven't covered. This book is available in all good shops, uh, all good bookshops, and undoubtedly a lot of bad ones as well. Um, also, <laughs> <laughs> uh, also online in all the usual sorts of places. Where would you, as an author, like people to go and seek out this book? Um, I'm a massive supporter of independent bookshops. I'm very lucky to have two um, brilliant um, independent bookshops very close to me. Um, Kenilworth Books, which is just wonderful, um, and Warwick Books, which is brilliant as well. Um, and so I would go to one of those. If you don't live near Kenilworth and Warwick, please find your um, independent, local independent bookshop. Or um, yeah, I'm I'm a big I'm a big believer in in trying to support bookshops. And if you, there isn't an independent one, then obviously the the larger bookshops are equally in need of your support. Um, yes, that's that would be my um, yeah I that would be my place to go. Excellent. Thank you. Kenilworth Books, I, I, just as a sideline, um, follow them on Twitter because they do so much for uh, for authors and writers and all sorts of things. They really are. Um, they, um, they held an event for me and they made Icelandic biscuits. It was amazing. <laughs> well, you can't have an event with, without biscuits and to have Icelandic ones at yours would be, <laughs> would be even better. <laughs> what, what's next for you? What are you, work, what are you working on at the moment? Um, so my next novel is set in Orkney and plenty of folklore in there too um, and it's currently called The Metal Heart and I'm not sure of publication date at the moment but um, there, there definitely will be, there will be a publication date at some point I'm sure um, but yes I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that and I'm, then I'm, I'm also sort of in the early stages of, of drafting of drafting the next one but um i spend a lot of time i don't write very economically i write very quickly and very badly and then spend a lot of time redrafting <laughs> so um i'm in in the process of writing quickly and badly at the moment excellent I'm, I'm sure it's not as bad as you think it is everything that everything that we write as authors is always worse to us than it is to anybody else yeah, you're you're absolutely right or orkney is hugely rich in folklore mm. um and there, there are some there are some great websites as well um which discuss um the the folklore of orkney and you could do far worse mm. as well than follow orkney library on twitter while we're talking about people oh, follow on twitter because they're, they're brilliant and hilarious they, yes definitely. they have what they have one of the best library twitter feeds out of out of all the libraries yeah. that i follow by it's so good yeah. it is hilarious uh, yeah, so yeah much. so yeah so follow orkney library <laughs> let's just throw that one in as well <laughs> definitely do. um <laughs> if, if people want to find out more about you and your writing where should they go um, so I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is at Caroline Lee Lee. That's Lee twice. Um, and I have a, a writing page on Facebook, so which is Caroline Lee Writer, um, I think. And um, I I think the the book itself is Googleable. You can find information um, on the Penguin website as well. And do you have your own website? 
Um, I do not have my own website. No, the idea of having to maintain and write something else fills me with horror. I'm sure at some stage I will have to do it, but I'm 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 resisting at the <laughs> moment um, because yeah, I I I'm stubbornly sticking to to writing the books and um and not a website. Yeah, um, uh, your your readers will be very pleased that you're concentrating on the books. Your publishers will also be very pleased, but they will also at some point make you do lots of other things as well because publishers are very good at doing that. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Caroline, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and to talk about your book. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant. Thank you, Mark. My thanks to Caroline for talking about The Glass Woman. Do visit the podcast website and follow the links from this episode to get a copy of her book. Author interviews have been proving very popular with listeners to the podcast, and I have received a number of books recently for review and discussion, so do look out for more of these sorts of interviews coming up soon. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening. <laughs>